Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Happy Hour History. Today I wanted to talk about the history of femininity. <laughs> um, and I mean this in a uh, in the typical heteronormative, you know, patriarchal society that the United States has largely been a part of, as well as many Western nations are still a part of um, when I'm talking about this. And when I'm talking about womanhood, you know, quote unquote. So... Oftentimes, the media, because it always comes back to like media representation, but the media has definitely promoted an image of what we think of as feminine. And, you know, if you, if I asked you to think about the most feminine person you know, I'll just give you a second. So think about the most feminine person you know, right? Okay. That information, how you make that assessment, like just the first one or two people who come to your mind are oftentimes based on what society tells us is feminine. So for women, this is going to be things like physical appearance, interest, even the sound of their voice, right? Um, Their interactions with, you know, men and women on a daily basis. It may come down to like other hairstyle or um, just things that they do to themselves aesthetically. But all of that is important in this country. And let's go all the way back, you know, 400 years ago. um, Femininity and the, the history of femininity has changed depending on like what time period you're in. Right. In the early beginnings of what is now the United States, women had to like do physical labor, right, to help grow crops or to help, you know, build the home. So it's very interesting as a historian that these things, there it's never been like a set thing, right? It sort of just adjusts to the time or nowadays, especially I would say in the last 60 years, 60, 70, maybe even 100 years, we've definitely had the media perpetuating what image they wanted women to believe was feminine um, or and even men. And then, um, you know, people were expected to conform to that standard, whatever it was at the time, right? During World War II, you know, a lot of women were, they had to create propaganda for women to go get the jobs that the country desperately needed them to fill. Like the riveters, the defense workers, the shipbuilders, right? Um, they had to create propaganda for that. Why? Because they had previously told women that any type of educational ambition um, was unfeminine. It was unfeminine unfeminine for them not to be home with their children rather than at work. It was unfeminine for them to try to do these jobs that were traditionally at that time seen as masculine. So they had to create propaganda to get women to go get those jobs so we could win the war because World War II would not have been won domestically for the, for the United States without the help of women. But then after, we know after the war, they created propaganda to get these women to stop and go back home, quote unquote, right? Now, for many women, and there's a great film called The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter, which is available on YouTube. Sometimes the link gets taken down because it's an older film and copyright stuff, but usually someone brings it back. It's a really, really, really good movie. I think it's done by Clearwater Films, but I'll put a link to it in the description box. Um, or at least, you know, the current link that I, that, um, is available, but it's a really good film. And 
you know, that film highlights women who were defense workers during World War II. And I think one of the interesting stories is that there's this woman, and this woman was a white woman, and she had been a single mother before the war. So she gets this, um, you know, she gets a defense job. She goes through all these classes. She's able to, you know, like make good money. And then she does extra classes at night school and things like that. And so her thing is, well, after the war's over, you know, I'm gonna, I want to be able to keep these jobs. So I'm going to get all this certification and that I can just keep on. But she wasn't able to do that. So she had to eventually get work in a cafeteria, which is where she ended up, you know, working for a number of years and then retiring. But the point is, is that, you know, a lot of times I think that the women who were single mothers and or didn't have, you know, a husband or father to come back home. Right. Um, I think that there needs to be more emphasis and more history shared about what life was like for those people. Right. Because, of course, at that time, especially since women were not being able to get a lot of those jobs because they were just being given to men. They, you know, it, it greatly affected their their standard of living and also their potential to do what they wanted to do. So going back um, after the war, there's a lot of propaganda created to get women to leave these jobs voluntarily. You know, they forcibly put women out of these jobs and then they started having a lot of like magazine articles saying, oh, well, you know, this is the type of dinner you should make. And it would be some, you know, meal recipes that would take, you know, a very long time to make or, or very intricate and elaborate, or they have a lot of articles about how, well, you know, your children need you at home. And it's like, okay, well, you weren't writing that during the war, right? Like when you wanted me to go work for eight to 10 hours or longer a day, right? But now that the war's over, it's like, oh, well, you know, women, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this. So our society greatly shapes that. In this country, it's also important to note that it is a very, I already mentioned that it's heteronormative. So it's implying that, you know, um, a woman is you know, existing within the space of a man or in pursuit of, especially with regard to femininity and also class and race. So oftentimes the things that the, the hallmarks of femininity, they cost money to maintain, and for a lot of working class women, those are not realities. So which is why I ask you to think about like, who's the most feminine person, you know, and then you, I mean, as a follow up question, I could ask you to think like, well, what tax bracket did they find themselves in? Right. Um, it takes time and money to do those things, right. Or to receive those types of services. Now there are plenty of examples, um, that I could pull from the media. So you know, at one time, like June Cleaver um, from Leave It to Beaver, the old, you know, black and white show. I don't know what I think the 50s that came out, right, or the 60s. But she would have been like, you know, the poster child for like motherhood, right, or for good womanhood of her era. Um, some of you may have seen the show Mad Men. So Betty Draper is positioned as this you know, like hyper feminine woman, right? She's always getting her, she gets her hair done. She gets her nails done. She's a stay at home mom. She's got all these elaborate clothes. She hosts these dinner parties, blah, 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 blah. So oftentimes the femininity model does not get lent toward working class women who cannot afford to maintain those types of things. Um, and race also plays into it too, because 
I know I mentioned this. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but non-white women were not always classified legally as women. Now, that's very, very important because if you're not legally classified as a woman, then you're not given any privileges that come with that. So if we're talking about slavery, enslaved people who are men and women, right, the women are expected to do the same amount of work as the men. They're not expected to carry less, work less hours, have, you know, days off due to like their menses or pregnancy or after having given birth. They're seen as just like genderless animals, so to speak. And this is happening at the same time that white women are seen as, you know, very fragile, incapable, um, you know, dainty, all those like, you know, like glass, right? Which is why women weren't allowed to run marathons for a long time. Women were believed to be incapable of, you know, um, intellectual thought because it would be too much stress on their heads, right? You have furniture that's designed for women to faint on because of their corsets and things like that. Um, and of course, again, class two, because of course, like poor women don't wear corsets, like poor women are at work, like they need their lungs at full capacity. Um, so that's why it's important. And just to kind of continue with that thought, you know, most of the time when you look at how women, like even at different beauty magazines from different eras, oftentimes, you know, white women are positioned as the most beautiful, the most feminine Um, you know, the pinnacle of femininity. And I want to reiterate again that this is going off of like a cis heteronormative idea of womanhood and women, um, you know, people who are born and assigned female at birth, how they navigate these spaces. So just want to make that clear again, that when I'm talking about it, like this is what I mean. So when you think about what women were supposed to do, how they were supposed to behave, what they were supposed to be, in throughout history, a lot of this surrounds itself with this idea of submissiveness, right? That good women are submissive, quiet. They are, um, you know, clothed in the appropriate way. They don't talk too much. And especially when you're talking about like women who have, who are existing in higher class spheres because of their fathers or husbands positions in society, you know, any woman who deviates from that is not seen as a good candidate for marriage or motherhood. And when you also look at the reasons why women could be institutionalized or um, forced to, you know, undergo hysterectomies and or clitoridectomies, which is exactly how it sounds. I'm not going to explain that. Um, These women were women who did not fit that model. So they, you know, when you look at the list, women could, you know, be forced into these things if they self-stimulated at all, which, you know, you know what that means. Um, Or if they, let's see, were considered, I know my, I told you all my dad was saying before about like watching my language. So I'm trying Um, (laughs) um, for women who, you know, read too many books right? Women who had a range of emotions, women who were, you know, sad or displayed, you know, what we would 
traditional today that we would just call like mood fluctuations things that are normal for any human being women well, i'm just gonna you know okay sorry dad i'm gonna keep it real women were supposed to just be like emotionless basins only there to have especially for uh, upper class women only to have ch- children like the legitimate children of their husbands they're not supposed to enjoy much of anything too much um they can't even talk too much or else they are seen as like a threat to society. And I was actually listening to um, watching something on Instagram. I follow um, Erica Hart and her partner Eb was talking about how this also relates to um, like the way women talk. And how, you know, we have this idea in our society that women are supposed to have, you know, high pitched, like light voices and women who have deeper voices or maybe whose voices aren't like as like upbeat or have that like upward inflection like that they are not seen as feminine and you know I was thinking about even for myself I typically don't even listen I mean I edit the podcast but I don't like to hear myself talk because (laughs) I always thought that my voice was just not that feminine and I and again this is somebody who's you know, done the reading, you know, theorizes about these things, has a lot of these things on my brain that I'm talking to you about. And I still didn't realize how caught up I was and how me even listening to my own voice, it made me upset because I always thought my voice was just a little too deep. And so there were times where I wanted to say something in class or in a group and I was like, I'm just going to be quiet because I would think, well, I don't like the way my voice sounds and, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, deal with that. And, you know, maybe if I say something and it's, you know, I'm getting passionate about the subject and, you know, the sound of my voice, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of that also goes with what we, what we perceive to be feminine, um, And, you know, people, women who don't have high pitched or upbeat, quote unquote, voices, you know, don't always aren't always seen as sounding feminine. And a lot of us don't even, you know, think that we are, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever met someone, especially a woman who said she didn't like the sound of her voice. Um, But also we know as women, you know, we're told that, you know, if we talk too much or we even complain that, you know, we're nagging and that basically just comes down to us talking and, you know, expressing our feelings or, you know, expectations from somebody is, you know, a bother to society. So this all is tied into it. So, um, you know, women weren't able to play a lot of sports and things like that because they were seen as frail and like they were not as capable physically as men. Now, the reason, again, I mentioned this, the how class and race play into this is because we know that for working class women and I'm not only just working class, we'll say working class and enslaved, right? Working class women and enslaved women at the same time as a lot of these things are being created, um, you know, they're in the fields, they're on plantations, they're you know, gutting the fish that are coming in from the docks. Like, they're actively a part of society. So society exists already where women do hard work, where women are expected to do that work because, you know, whether 
basically as a function of capitalism. (laughs) It all comes back to capitalism. But um, as a function of capitalism, whether they are enslaved or not, whether they're slaves to the land or slaves to the clock, they're expected to do this work. You know, um, there's, I learned about it when I took a history of Paris class, but um, you know, when you look at like the, the women who, you know, worked on the fishing docks or women who've had, you know, traditionally laborious jobs, you know, who get buff arms from doing that type of labor, right? Like they don't have the benefits of femininity in their respective societies. And these are, you know, white women in these cases, most of the times. Um, and again, like they're not just non, they're not non-white women a lot of times, and they're not even enslaved, to the land, but they are slaves to the clock. So those working class women aren't given the benefits of um, femininity because their work itself means that they are not able to exist in that space, right? Um, how can you say that a woman is unca- is incapable of playing this sporting game, but you have women who are, you know, loading docks and you know loading and hauling crates in you know 18th century France (laughs) right or women who are picking hundreds of pounds of cotton a day in 19th century United States so I thought that was something that was something that was very interesting now another thing that Eb brought up that I thought was interesting I wanted to talk about was this idea that even though wealthy white women, especially like plantation owners' wives, are lifted up as, well, let's talk about that first. So with regard to plantation politics, <laughs> um, I guess like, you know, the, the politics or the history of femininity has like, you know, like political history as part of it. But, you know, the the master's wife is seen as like the pinnacle of femininity and beauty. And anytime you see even slave narrative movies, oftentimes the females are in, you know, if you take an art history, you know what I'm talking about. Oftentimes the women, especially because a lot of times these are black women are depicted as unfeminine, um, not beautiful. They're sort of just background and it's meant as a way to not distract from the beauty of the white woman right? They're not supposed, like, you are not as the viewer supposed to view this melanated woman as being anywhere near as attractive as the white women who she's attending to. Now, white women do that on purpose because they know that these women are, you know, attractive. They know that these women have attractive qualities. They know that these um, women are, whether coerced or not, being the partners of their husbands and other men in that area who are not black, but you know, it, as a way to uphold their own image, they position black femininity as something that is um, assertive and um, grotesque and you know, like too aggressive, right? That somehow, like, they're just naturally more aggressive and so they're not feminine. And I'll come back to that, but. Ebb mentioned that there's this book um, called Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. And Jacobs describes how white women are being are shown as the pinnacle of femininity and, you know, the peak of Christian womanhood that, you know, they listen to their husbands, they listen to their, you know, they listen to the word of God, like through like the, you know, the Bible 
and they are having their children, they don't talk back, you know, they're behaving in all the ways that society tells them that they're feminine. But at the same time, these women are very, very cruel to the people who they have dominion over. In this case, they're slaves. And that brings me back to another really good book that I still haven't finished because it is very, very heavy, even for me, a historian, um, is the book They Were Her Property by Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. So I guess Stephanie Jones Rogers. Um, And, you know, these women are very, very cruel to their slaves, right? Like even to children, So, you know, they're expected to be good mothers and, um, you know, sort of dote on their children, but they're also allowed to behave very barbarically to other people's children, right? Um, Breaking their jaws in rocking chairs because they left a piece of candy out knowing that eventually the child would eat the candy because most children do. And then, you know, rocking back and forth um, in a rocking chair, making the, the, the black child have their head under that rocking chair and then until their jaw breaks, right? Or beating and whipping these children and teaching their children how to assert that type of racial dominance over them and not see them as, you know, their playmates and their friends, even though they are always surrounding, you know, they're always spending time together in that capacity. Um, it's very, very important. So... I mentioned that just because, you know, they are able to sort of eschew historical responsibility for racial violence by virtue of being women. And I think that I know that, you know, Bill Burr had his SNL sketch and I was like, I don't know why these people are upset. They clearly haven't seen his Netflix special, but he mentions that, you know, white women also have to take a minute to like take their talking to Like, you know, I think he uses the analogy, like, you were in the jacuzzi with me. You know I mean? You benefited from the blood money. You benefited from, you know, the racial society that put you on that pedestal. And, you know, now we're living in a time where people are more able to talk about that and understand the ramifications that it still has today. But it's not just on white men. It's also on the women of that that community as well. Um... And, you know, even today, our media still uses a white, cisgendered, heteronormative, upper class, educated, young, you know, conventionally attractive model for what femininity is without talking about how those women leverage their femininity and the privileges of that femininity by being able to check all those boxes on our society, right? When you have instances where a lot of women are calling the cops on kids or on people in public spaces um, and using the police to enforce you know, their individual will, right? If a woman walks past, it was, it was in San Francisco area, I think, but there's a woman who you know walks past this house that has a Black Lives Matter sign. She's, oh, you know, she sees the guy putting out the sign and she says, oh, is this your house? It's like, why do you feel empowered to stop and question me in front of this house to ask me if it's my house? And then when I say yes, you don't just keep it pushing, right? Like you're making a scene, you're standing by trying to engage me in conversation to find out if this is really my house. So these things are still very important. Um, 
media representation has gotten a lot better in the past, you know, few decades. Um, certainly much better than it was even when I was a kid. I mean, I can tell now, right? I mean, now on TV you have, um, you know, different ranges of people. You have different shades of people who are from, you know, similar races or countries and things like that. It's much more representation. You have, you know, mixed race families on TV and things like that. You have same sex families on television, but, you know, we understand that our media still perpetuates this idea that, actually, I forgot to even add like able-bodied and thin, right? But able-bodied, thin, white, young, conv- you know, conventionally attractive women are the standard of beauty in America. So much so that it's very difficult for women who are, you know, who were once that thing, but who are now older, you know, to even get work, right, in ads or on runways or in films or anything like that in plays because they've sort of aged out right or their bodies have changed or shifted and they may or may not have had work done and all these things that women are expected to do that all circles back to um, their perceived youth and it's interesting because Eb was talking about you know how the the sound of your voice as a woman that Oftentimes women are expected to have that, like, like I mentioned, that higher pitched, like more quote youthful voice, but that it really goes back to being seen as infantile and incapable and that making them more attractive to men for the purposes of, you know, whatever, mating, whatever. And it was interesting because this is, this was happening on Instagram and, but Um, And some of the women who were writing in who were saying that, yeah, they noticed that when they're talking to their partner, you know, well, you know, if I ask my male partner to do something and I use like a softer or like more like baby like voice, he'll he'll he's likelier to do it. Or if I um, am at work and I'm talking to a man or, you know, trying to engage a man in some way, if I use my normal speaking voice, it it doesn't work. But if I use like a higher pitched, more like girly, like girly voice, then I have no problem getting what I want or what I need. So it's very interesting how these things still you know, have an effect today and how they're very real in our society, even though we do live in a time where there is more um, equity among the genders and women you know, don't have the same work experience as they did what we did 50, 60 years ago. And I think that in a large part, women are still expected to, even though we live in a society where, you know, (laughs) women are allowed to be strong in many ways, we still have a society that demonizes women who are not seen as, who who are seen as constantly capable, right? And I'll use Serena Williams as an example. Serena Williams is one of the best tennis players ever. And she's probably one of the best athletes in this country. But as someone who is a dark-skinned black woman, you know, and someone who has gotten as many titles and grand slams and all the accolades that she's been able to get, a lot of times she is not positioned as what would be considered a, you know, feminine. 
right? When you look at a lot of depictions of her, a lot of caricatures that are racially based with the way they draw her and things like that, but they usually draw her bigger than she is. Sometimes they draw her darker than she is. Like all these things go back to a history that is basically saying that because she has these physical characteristics, like she's not feminine, right? When you look at the fact that she's drug tested much more than her peers or that as as decorated as she is within the field or the game of tennis, that she doesn't have more endorsement deals than, you know, some of her um, counterparts who are, who don't have nearly the accolades she does, but have different phenotype or different races and have different, you know, physical characteristics that they have more chances for print ads is not lost on us, right? It's all very, very connected. And when you look at who are even considered feminine, um, I have two other examples. Um, You know, a decade ago, people were saying that about Sierra. They were saying, oh, well, you know, she must must be a man. Or they were trying to find reasons to say she's a man. Um, And (laughs) I don't know if if any of you remember that, but I do. And, you know, right now, there's a lot of people, especially in the last year, who've tried to say that about Megan the Stallion. And it's these examples of, you know, brown skinned women, like visibly black women who are great at what they do. Sierra is a great dancer. Megan is a great rapper, but their femininity is called into question because that because of their physicality, because they are the best at what they do for their respective, you know, genres, um, whether that be sports or music or anything like that. Um, and somehow society and even, you know, within black society, but society in general uses that as an opportunity to claim that they're not women, which basically comes down to that they shouldn't be given the presumption of the privileges that typically go along with being identified as a woman, right? Um, the attention to detail, the caring for in general society that you would expect someone to extend to a woman. And I could go into all that, but I don't think I need to. I think you understand what I'm saying. Now let's talk about how this manifests itself in a different group. So when you look at Asian women, right? Asian women have not always been considered, um, you know, equal to white women legally socially in media and things like that so I know I've done a podcast before talking about the some of the issues and the histories surrounding how Asian people were treated and especially how Asian women have been excluded but now I'll talk about um, that phenomena in media so Asian women um, in a lot of media are depicted in hypersexual ways and again this is meant to as a way say that because they're aggressive, right, because they are being sexually suggestive by Western standards in these scripted films, um, that it's okay to enact violence on them or not treat them the way that you would consider like good women should be treated. Okay. Um, There's a pretty interesting film called The World of Susie Wong, and I believe that came out in 1970 believe it came out in 1970 but I'm not 100% sure no I think it was 1960 I'm pretty sure it was 1960 so anyway it was a long time ago not long but you know quite a few decades ago now that film came out and if you watch it the main protagonist Susie 
is a very pale complected Chinese woman. Um, the other Chinese, it's taking place in China. So the other, um, women in like the scenes that she's in are, um, not as like Europeanized, if that makes sense. Like her, like some of you understand what I'm talking about. Like they have much more, you know, stereotypical accents. They're not as pale as she is. Their features are um, not the same as her. So she definitely stands out as being more like European leaning than her other than the other female counterparts in the film. And again, I don't know if the actress who played her is actually Chinese. I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. But um, the reason why I bring it up is because, you know, it the film pretty much takes place in this bar and this artist meets this woman and they have this like love affair and it's this whole like romantic thing going on. Um, same thing with Madame Chrysanthem, which becomes Madame Butterfly. Um, it's the same thing, right? You have a woman who I think that one is in, I think I want to say it's in Japan, but it's another example of an Asian woman who falls in love with this white man and is waiting hand and foot. And in the end, she ends up like killing herself because she can't, it's like unrequited love. Um, these women were not historically seen as feminine or again, like worthy of the treatment of normal, um, the, the normal treatment that women were supposed to receive in society, like the good women. Right. So it's, in the eyes of society, it's okay to use them as sexual objects. It's okay to, you know, treat them in this hypersexual fashion. Or, you know, we know that all these things do create racially insensitive jokes that have very ramifications. You know, this thing that just happened in Atlanta is a large part of that, no matter what the shooter says. Um, there's a long history of the fetishization of Asian women, and that has very real effects for, the, for those communities in the United States today and abroad but that's where it comes from so these women not being seen under the umbrella of femininity because of that perception of their aggressive sexuality it has made it so that way you know it has become like a typecast like a stereotype in society or a caricature of who these people are and at the same time right creating this model minority myth that is the complete polar opposite of that so that's something that I guess I could maybe talk about later, but, um, you know, it's part of the larger conversation surrounding femininity. And the last thing I'll mention is that I have done a podcast about the history of Latino lynching. And I mentioned for, um, you know, since that was predominantly happening to the Mexican American community in the Southwestern United States, how that is going to affect, um, women of Latin descent, especially, you know, um, women who are from Latin American countries and Mexican-American women in a lot of Westerns and popular media from many from a few decades ago, where those women were also hypersexualized, right? Where, you know, when you see them, they are in brothels or in saloons, again, places that, you know, good girls aren't supposed to be in and legally aren't allowed to be in. But it creates this idea that these women are you know, hypersexual, aggressive, you know, we know that Hollywood runs with that trope when, we talk, when you think about the roles that are given to some of these women and how they don't necessarily have um, the availability to have full reign. And full range just pertains to the types of roles that they get. 
Um, are they able to be leaders in politics, teachers, mothers, wealthy classes, up um, lower classes? Are they able to be, you know, more than just the maid or the supporting character, things like that? Now, how this manifests manifests itself today in a like everyday context is many of the preferences that people have or that they think they have when they're looking for a female partner is rooted in this history and perpetuated through the imagery, whether or not the person realizes it. Most of us don't realize that, you know, the preferences that we think we have are colonized thoughts. And it takes the unlearning of those things to be able to understand that it happened in the first place. So um, I will do another episode about like the history of masculinity in that case or and relate this and that podcast as well. But when people are looking for a female partner, you know, and you consider the things that, you know, people claim that they're looking for um, or, you know, if you if you are or know any women who um, have high position jobs or make a lot of money or are experts in their field or who are just bosses in general, right? Sometimes they say that it's difficult for them to find partners, right? Because their experience does not align with whatever the person thinks that they're looking for in their female partner, whether that be a man looking for a woman or another woman looking for um, a, a woman partner. So I just think it's very interesting that, like I said, we, we have to unlearn that so that we can like retrain ourselves to look for different things and to acknowledge not only how this affects who, you know, part, who people, how people potentially partner, but also how we pick our friends Um, the things that we think about our colleagues and the things we think about ourselves, right? I gave you all that example about myself and thinking about how I've critiqued my own voice under this, you know, guise that it needed to sound a certain way and that, you know, it has caused me to be quiet in some spaces because I didn't want to have to hear my voice or I didn't want other, I was self-conscious about them hearing my voice, which is crazy because I'm doing a podcast, right? So, um, yeah, just something to think about. And another way that all of us can make sure not to buy into this is to not just sit silently by when we watch people berating people or qu- calling their femininity into question with regard to, you know, their the protection that those people are given in society um, because of their perceived lack of femininity, Right. Um, I could also just go ahead and give an example of, you know, people who are trans women, right? That people, if they, if in their minds, they see this woman and then they find out that it's a trans woman, then all of a sudden they don't think that they have to extend any courtesy to that person anymore. And that has been perpetuated through our media as well, right? Talk shows, films, television show, um, television programs, real life, Uh, And it's not okay, right? Um, The same thing could be said for people. Um, There's films where, you know, you have someone who appears like they're white and then you find out like that they're black, right? That they are just very, very fair complected or maybe they're biracial, but they don't look black at all. And that once they find out, once the man finds out that that partner is black, then he beats her up, which 
is would not have been considered okay if she were a white woman, right? But because she's a black woman under this guise of like, well, you know, you tricked me or you lied to me somehow, even though they didn't ask you outright or didn't come up in conversation yet, that somehow like the the violence done on them is justified because of the group that they are actually belonging to, right? Um, or that the person believes that they actually belong to. So all of that is very, very, very relative. Um, even in the film, you know, the Susie Wong one, right? Being overly aggressive to these Asian women because um, there's this notion that they're sex workers because they're working in a bar. Um, all of that is related to today and how people take liberty to assault women um, that they believe to be from those communities, respectively, or who work in those different capacities and or professions. So I think I'm going to go ahead and end this episode. Like I said, I will make one about the history of masculinity, but um, I don't think I already mentioned um, specific books. So I don't think there's anything else that I need to cite or that I think I should give a title for but like I said I will put in the description box um the current url if you wanted to watch the life and times of Rosie the Riveter on YouTube for free um like I said it is free on YouTube even if the link gets taken down if you listen to this later if you if you type in YouTube life and times of Rosie the Riveter usually it's the first one or two that pops up I think it's like a 50 minute movie or maybe like an hour and 10 minutes it is completely um, safe for kids. If you want to watch it with your family, um, there's nothing like offensive in the film necessarily, or that's like explicit. I guess as you said, there's something that's explicit, right? Um, I mentioned like one of the women's stories already, but I also really like the film because it talks about, you know, you have varied women, you have like a Jewish woman, a Jewish American woman who is, you know, a defense worker. And she talks about like what life was like for her. And then, like I mentioned, you had that white single mom, you have some black women and then some of them talking about how, you know, like one of them got in trouble on the job because these guys started beating up this Filipino guy just because he was Filipino and then she like threatened him with her torch <laughs> and she got called into like the the commander's um like office and she was going to get chewed out and then you know a bunch of guys went down there to like um make sure she didn't get in trouble but it's got a lot of great stories and it's really important i think for a lot of people to know more of that gendered side of world war 2 and again playing into like how the media shaped how those women were seen during that time period and immediately after. And even today, right, you sort of have this ideal of this like glamorized image of like the Riveter. You think like Rosie the Riveter, right? Um, that, you know, women are strong and we can do it and women empowerment. But then like two or three years later, it's like, oh no. And then you have that image of the man, um, the sailor kissing that woman in the street. And it's like that image is viral here in San Diego. We have I think we still have it down near um, Seaport Village, but it's that huge statue near the Midway, right across from the Midway Museum ship. And it's you know, this guy kissing this girl. And again, it's and now it's shifted. Now it's, oh, you know, like they're home. You know, now like the good thing to do as a woman is to like go home and have babies, right? But in reality, that man didn't even know her. 
So it was just weird. Some dude just grabbed you on the street and kissed you. But that's a whole nother story. So I will see you all in the next one. Have a great day or night. Bye.